Coming up on the Shark Fighter podcast, Mary Morlino was as fit as you can be. I was very physically fit and had been my entire life. And yet her heart was failing her. And the next thing I knew, I woke up and standing in the doorway is an EMT, my sister looking terrified. Mary's story and the unique way she's fighting back. Coming up on the Shark Fighter podcast. This is the Sark Fighter Podcast, living with sarcoidosis and other rare diseases. Here's your host, John Carlin. Well, hello and welcome to the episode 16 of the Sark Fighter Podcast. I'm your host, John Carlin, and the... uh, Official Sark Fighter song that we just heard is called Zombie by Mark Steyer. He has a band, the White Hot Lizards, based in Alberta, Canada. Mark is a fellow Sark Fighter, and you can hear his story and also the inspiration for the lyrics. If you listen closely, they really tell a sarcoidosis story. I interviewed him in episode 12. Of course, I call this the Sark Fighter podcast because I'm fighting Sark, and so are you, whether you be a caregiver a sarcoidosis patient, a researcher, uh, the CEO of a pharmaceutical company. If you are interested or touching SARC in some way, then hopefully you are considering yourself a SARC fighter as well. Now, if you're new to the podcast, this is where we talk to and about people who have touched sarcoidosis in some way, or maybe I should say sarcoidosis has touched them. It's a place kind of where people can gather, and I, and I do appreciate it when you take the time to send me an email, and my email address is in the show notes, uh, to just tell me that, that you are listening and that you appreciate it, and I would be open to any suggestions and or criticisms. So uh, all I want to do is make this better, and I want to try and make this thing a... Uh, a rolling ball of butcher knives when it comes to taking on sarcoidosis. Uh, I steal that expression from a friend of mine who often refers to running backs that way. Uh, at any rate, uh, wouldn't it be great if the Sark Fighter podcast could could gather enough momentum that it became a rolling ball of butcher knives and, and uh, started to make some progress against sarcoidosis. I normally release this every other Monday, and for the past few months, I've been on schedule, and if you're listening to this, uh, it looks like I made it again. Uh, If you're wondering, by the way, if you're more at risk from COVID-19 because you have sarcoidosis, a couple of things here. Uh, Of course, you're immune suppressed, so you might think, yes, you were one of those people that we mentioned on the news that you should not be out, and to a certain extent, that's true. But you should listen to my interview with the real expert, Dr. Robert Boffin from the University of Cincinnati and one of the big names in fighting sarcoidosis, not just in the United States, but in the world. I interviewed him in episode nine, and it was a survey distributed through the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research. And now they're doing a follow-up survey, which I will also put a link to that in the show notes. Um, I took the survey, didn't take long, maybe 10 minutes. 
and I hope he'll take it as well. It really gives these folks who are trying to figure out what's going on with COVID and with SARC uh, a look at how patients uh, have uh, reacted to COVID, how many of us are getting it, how many of us are uh, having a severe uh, episode of it, and so forth and so on. Uh, and the only way they can do that right now is to build data from the survey. There's not, there just aren't enough patients and there's not enough time to uh, to wait for them to come through doctor's offices, so they're doing it this way. So uh, please check that out and fill that out, and uh, and then I'll do a follow-up interview with Dr. Boffman if, he is, uh, if he's willing to. He certainly was last time. So I'll reach out to him at the appropriate time. Meanwhile, um, just know that I'm trying to build kind of a body of information here on the podcast where you can look at the menu of interviews, and we're up to 16 now, uh, and see what it is that you want to hear about. Do you want to hear from a fellow SARC patient? Do you want to hear from a researcher? Um, do you want to hear about what the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research is about and how it is so effective in helping people. I've got uh, several interviews with the staff there. So uh, that's what we're doing here, trying to uh, create our uh, <laughs> our rolling ball of butcher knives. A couple of thoughts before I get to my interview with Mary Morlino. Um, it, just in listening to her, um, it's it's just amazing how many people, I think it's 100%, I think it's, I think it's 10 out of 10 so far, uh, of uh, people I've interviewed who started out with some sort of a symptom and they wound up with either a misdiagnosis or, as Mary put it, no diagnosis. Like they just can't figure out what's wrong with you. And it, I'm just perplexed that it takes doc, it takes doctors so long to even think of sarcoidosis. Uh, sometimes, like in Mary's case, it's years. In my case, it was it was a couple of years, and then often they only figure it out when they get a biopsy. And I don't know what they think they're looking for, but it comes back and they say, oh yeah, non-caseating granuloma, you've got sarcoidosis. Um, and it's understandable because it shows up in different places in the body where maybe you're not looking for it. It's most often in the lungs. Uh, they certainly weren't looking for it when they decided they were going to go mining my spine for uh, whatever was in that mass that was, was showing up on an MRI. And uh, when they came back with sarcoidosis, that was not anything anybody had ever mentioned to me, and Mary had heart troubles, and as you'll hear, uh, her story was much the same. But do you, have you ever watched the television show House? House is a, a doctor, and his job, I can't remember what kind of doctor he is, but uh, that type of doctor's job is to figure out what's wrong with somebody that nobody else can figure out. And he sits around with his staff, and they look at the symptoms, and somebody inevitably on his staff raises a hand and says, what about sarcoidosis? <laughs> you know, uh, when I first told my sons who were House fans that I had this, you know, back in 2016, they're like, oh yeah, that's the thing they always mention on House. Well, if, you know, if Hollywood can think of it, why can't other doctors think of it? And one of the things Mary will talk about today, because she's involved with uh, something called the Every Life Foundation, is that there are actually 7,000 rare diseases. And every one of them is trying to find funding and medicines that are uh, created, therapies that are created just for that disease. Like the sarcoidosis, you know, they, they start out with prednisone. Well, they give you prednisone to cure poison ivy too. I mean, prednisone is, is a cure-all, but uh, there's nothing out there that I'm aware of that is just for SARC. And um, I think that's a problem. And, and, and if, uh, 
if more doctors in the medical community at large could become more aware of sarcoidosis, they could look for it sooner. Uh, I think it would be so much better for all of us who are who are fighting this thing. Um, and then the other thing that Mary talked about is that uh, uh, you you have multiple doctors when you have sarcoidosis. Uh, for instance, uh, for me, I have it on my spinal cord. If you've been listening, you know that. So because it's in my nervous system, I need to have a neurologist. But since sarcoidosis normally shows up in your lungs, I also have a pulmonologist who is probably my lead doctor. And then I have a rheumatologist because where I live in Roanoke, Virginia, uh, if you're diagnosed with sarcoidosis, it automatically goes into uh, rheumatology. So um, I have two doctors at the Cleveland Clinic and a local doctor. And then, and then, and then I, also, of course, have my personal physician, my family doctor. And it is so hard to, uh, as Mary said, to get your doctors to talk to one another. And at one point, and this is going back a, a few years, I had two doctors from different disciplines, but their offices were on the same floor. And I could not get them to talk to one another. And one of them was telling me that I needed chemo. And the other one was telling me I needed Remicade. And I had no idea who to believe. No idea. And both of them seemed like very credible, knowledgeable doctors. But I, you know, I'm not in a position to decide. And it, it's just so, so hard to deal with that. And you're frustrated because you don't feel good. And it takes forever to get a, a follow-up appointment. So you feel like you need to decide in the minute or else go home for four weeks or four months feeling cruddy. And I mean, it's, ju it's just a, it's a mess is what it is. So anyway, that's, uh, that's one of the things that, that triggered in my mind when Mary was talking again. And I, don't wanna, I, wanna, I want you to hear it from her, but uh, I have a feeling that it's going to resonate with you. Um, and then... Uh, Today, I just want to let you know that uh, Mary is, uh, is in pretty good shape these days, but uh, she at one point thought she needed a heart transplant, and she may still at some point, uh, but she has suffered through all the situations that I, I just mentioned. Um, she, does, she did have two small children when she started out, and be, she was young. She was super fit, and all of a sudden, doctors are looking at her, telling her, that she needed a therapy that she thought was reserved for like grandparents. And I, again, I don't want to steal her story, but um, certainly wasn't what she expected to hear since she was an aerobics instructor. Okay. A little hint there. And now uh, towards the end of the interview, she is working for a nonprofit that I'm anxious for all of you to hear about. It takes the fight uh, right to our leaders in Washington trying to make them more aware and then help more helpful, hopefully, to the cause of rare diseases in general, orphan diseases, as they're sometimes called. Uh, and I mentioned it a moment ago, it's the Every Life Foundation. Mary's going to be telling us much more about it. And of course, I'll have information in the show notes. And then just uh, uh, before we come back with Mary, I just want to pitch my blog, my cycling blog to you. It's called uh, Carl and the Cyclist, uh, where I talk about all the different places in the country that I ride or have written or plan to ride. Uh, but I also have a section in there called Cycling with Sarcoidosis. Uh, and you can check that out under carlandthecyclist.com. And just, just kind of how I've had a lot of ups and downs as, uh, you know, a pretty uh, motivated and active intermediate level cyclist. So there's a lot of guys around here, even at my best, who would kick my butt. But, um, 
I'm also not out there puttering on the greenway. You know, I've got I've got three or four bicycles, and I you know I try to ride quite a lot. But I'll tell you what, um, with sarcoidosis and the various side effects from the medications, it has been it's been a challenge. And so I've been trying to sort of um, chronicle all of that. And you know, you might be a walker, a runner, aerobics instructor. You know, somebody who whose life revolves around fitness, and you define yourself maybe by fitness. And then Sark just really makes you rethink who you are and, and what you are, um, which, is, which is something else that Mary talks about. Um, but anyway, uh, if you want to check out my blog, I would really appreciate it, carlinthecyclist.com. And then look under there. There's a, there's a drop-down menu under Sarkling, Cycling with Sarcoidosis. And I'm about two-thirds of the way through uh, a new post on that. So maybe by the time you listen to this, it'll be up. Maybe not, but it's all about uh, riding my bike up in Burlington, summer 2020. Okay, so let's get to Mary right after this. The Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research is the nation's leading nonprofit organization dedicated to finding the cure for this disease and to improving care for sarcoidosis patients worldwide. Since its establishment in 2000, FSR has fostered over $5 million in sarcoidosis-specific research efforts and has provided disease education and support for thousands of individuals navigating life with sarcoidosis. Learn more about FSR and how they're supporting those impacted by this disease at www.stopsarcoidosis.org. to the Sark Fighter podcast. Joining me today is Mary Morlino, who has an amazing story to tell. Uh, not only is she a Sark fighter, like all of us are, uh, she has had some of the same issues and maybe even greater issues than, than uh, that you may be uh, or may have had if you were listening. And, uh, but she's also involved with a foundation that might be helpful to all of us who are fighting sarcoidosis and other rare diseases. So Mary, thank you for joining us here today. Oh, thank you, John. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to share my story and to speak with you. Yeah, well, you've got, you've got an amazing story. Um, I know that uh, a common thread among all of us uh, who have uh, experienced sarcoidosis was uh, a time of unknown, of misdiagnosis, no diagnosis, something terrible going on in our bodies. And that was certainly true for you. Do you want to share that story with the listeners? Sure, be happy to. Um, well, my, my story basically started when I was on vacation visiting my sister. Um, at the time, um, I was very physically fit and had been my entire life. And I had an incident that happened. Um, I was lying in bed. And I was reading and um, I all of a sudden felt sick. So I went to the bathroom. I ended up getting sick in the bathroom. And then I went back to bed and I'm lying in bed. I'm reading and my heart feels like it's beating out of my neck. And I thought, oh no, I have food poisoning and the whole family is going to have food poisoning. It's going to be a mess. There's a lot of us in this house right now. And um, so I went to go to the bathroom again. And the next thing I knew, I woke up 
and standing in the doorway is an EMT, my sister looking terrified, and I didn't know what had happened. Apparently, I had collapsed in my sister's bathroom. So I got rushed to the hospital, and the whole time I'm like, this is not happening, this is really weird, I'm fine, I'm fine. Um, but I get to the hospital and they, in the emergency room, they're doing a bunch of tests and they said, we don't know what's going on. Um, obviously something happened. We don't know whether you had a heart attack or a thyroid storm or something else, but we're unsure, so we're gonna admit you. So I was admitted. I spent a week in that hospital having all kinds of tests. And one of the tests was the common stress test that a lot of us do um, where you're on the treadmill. And beforehand, as I mentioned, I was always, I was a tomboy, an athlete, a fitness instructor, I, that I was fit. And that day I had actually spent riding bikes with my, um, my own children and my um, nephews. And so I was thinking, this will be no problem. 45, I could do 45 minutes on a treadmill. I couldn't do one minute without beginning to collapse. So after um, that, they're like, okay, that's really strange. And um, so they ended up doing the stress test by a nuclear um, stress test. And they said, yeah, you have AV block, complete AV block. So that's the... Um, connection in the heart that, that the top of the heart is talking to the bottom of the heart, sending those electrical impulses. Something had failed, something had severed the AV node in my heart. And they didn't know what it was. And they're like, well, you know what, you'll still be okay. And <laughs> then they said, you'll be fine. It's a one-off. You can just um, go back home. And at the time I was, I was living in Switzerland and I was concerned because I'm like, well, I'm about to fly with two young children from Los Angeles to Switzerland, and my you, you still don't have a clear answer of what happened to me. I'm really sorry about the dog. <laughs> okay. okay, it doesn't sound that bad here. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so they said, don't worry about it. You know what, just take a Valium, just relax in the flight. I'm sure you'll be fine. It was probably nothing. You're probably fine. So I flew back to Switzerland. I was there one or two days and then I was going to work and I was going up the stairs to get to my car with one of my children and I felt lightheaded. I'm like, oh my God, I feel like I'm gonna pass out. So I called my husband at the time and he's like, um, you'll probably be fine, don't worry about it. Just keep, you know, just keep going. So I'm like, all right. So I still didn't feel okay, but I drove down the mountain and dropped my daughter off um, at my work with my friend. And I said, you know what, I don't feel right. I think I'm gonna go to the hospital. So I drove myself to the emergency room, which is not something anybody should ever do. <laughs> Just putting that in there. Right. And I went in and they're like, yeah, something's not right. They thought maybe I had a pulmonary embolism. They thought it could be anything. So I had a, a week's worth of testing in that hospital. I had a halter monitor and you know they basically did a week's worth of testing. They said, we don't know what it is, so you can go home. And I'm like, okay, but I know something's not right. So I go home, the next day I can't go from my bed to the bathroom without feeling like I'm gonna pass out. And 
I'm like, something seriously is not right. So I ended up having to sit in an office chair to be wheeled to the stairs. And then I kind of crawled up the stairs to get out of the house. And um, we ended up going to, I had my, my husband at the time, we drove to this other hospital, which was a bigger hospital. And I really thought I was not going to make it because I just didn't, I was like, this something seriously wrong. So I walked into that hospital and, well, actually I didn't walk. Um, <laughs> and once I was in there, they're like, yeah, you have complete heart block. You need a pacemaker. Now, mind you, this is in Switzerland. I was living in the French speaking part and I am listening to them and I'm saying, I'm sorry, you, you don't understand because in English, a pacemaker is for old people. And they're like, no, no, you don't understand. You need a pacemaker. And, and you're, so, still, you're still very physically fit otherwise, right? Oh yeah, I'm yeah. 41 years old and I would go hiking twice a week. I'd play tennis for hours. I would ski for days. I I was a, yeah. I'm a personal trainer. I'm a, I was a physical fitness. And they're telling you, you need a pacemaker. Yeah, and I've had nothing wrong with my heart ever. And huh. I'm like, that's crazy. I was, I was super fit and I could do days of exercise and be like, okay, cause that's just, I was always, that was how I defined myself. Yeah. Yeah. I know I, that, that, that was, that's my story. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I'm like, wait a minute. No, I'm used to like orthopedic issues, but nothing with my heart. That was yeah. like, you've got to be kidding me. Right. I could do any sport. I might not do them great, but I could do any sport. Right, right. So, 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 they, so they give you the pacemaker? So after a week in the hospital, they did give me the pacemaker after, and it was, it was honestly, it was terrifying because I'm lying in bed for a week with all these machines keeping me alive. And the day I'm going in for the surgery, the other hospital calls and said, oh, we just read your halter monitor. You need to come in immediately. Hello. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I think so. I'm good. So it was kind of nuts. And so I got the pacemaker. Then I'm following up with a regular cardiologist um, just to get to know him. And I'm trying to figure out, I'm like, well, what happened? What went wrong? I don't understand. Why would my heart all of a sudden stop? And he's like, we don't know. And, but you're, you know, you're alive and you have the pacemaker and you're good. And I'm like, okay. And I didn't need any medication. It was just the pacemaker. He says, just heal and go on about your business. So I did. And I, you know, after some time of letting it heal, then I started doing a lot of my activities again. I went back to skiing and tennis and, you know, hiking and I did notice that it was a little harder for me for the hiking, like especially when I got to the tops of the mountains, I'm like, wow, this is, this is harder. But yeah. my natural state from being a little tomboy was always to push myself harder. Like, come on, you can do this. And I would always just push. And that was, you know, that's always how I've been. Cause I'm, I, I was always relatively little. So it was like, I had to keep up with the, bigger and stronger people so I had that weird Napoleon thing going on yep, yep. <laughs> so I'm like just push you're fine so years go by I'm still not on any medication 
um, our family ends up moving back to the United States and I get a new set of doctors in New Jersey. So we moved to New Jersey, I get a new cardiologist and he's, you know, listening to the story and reading my records. He goes, oh, it's really kind of strange. So he, you know, still didn't need medication, but then over the years, there was some um, decrease in function. And he's like, hey, you know, we started some medication. And I believe I started on Diavan first. And um, then it's, it's a couple of years go by and- Those are heart meds, right? Yeah. No one has ever said sarcoidosis to you yet. No, not at all. They okay. just said, I have a severed AV node and I, it's all electrical. And they checked my, the pipes, they checked the arteries, which were all clear. And they're like, yeah, we have no explanation, but mm -hmm. you have a pacemaker. So you're fine. Uh huh. <laughs> and I'm like, right. okay. And I'm like, okay, you know, you, you kind of go through this thing where you're just hopeful that they're right. That you're like, you know, it was a weird fluke. I have a pacemaker. I'm good. That pacemaker okay. basically at this point is a band-aid. It's oh, just yeah. a band-aid. It's just re yep. treating the symptoms. Yeah. And I had no idea that there was anything wrong else wrong with my body or my heart for that matter. I just yep. figured it was a fluke. So the doctor, at one point I was working at a gym and this was in 2014, but I noticed that all of a sudden my physical ability was starting to decline rapidly. And the classes that I would teach, I was having a hard time keeping up with. And I thought, well, maybe I'm getting sick. Maybe there's a flu, maybe it's something, but I, and I couldn't understand why I wasn't able to physically do the classes that I had been able to do for years. So I went to the doctor and he's like, yeah, we have another decrease in function. And so we added some medications and he's like, let's do some more testing. So we did more testing and, you know, I did the CT scan, the echo, I had a PET scan and he's like, yeah, there's something seriously going wrong with your heart and it's getting worse. Let's do a biopsy. And so they, what they wanted to do was a biopsy of my lungs. And I'm like, okay, my lungs are fine. I don't understand why. And he says, well, it's easier to do a biopsy of the lungs than it is to do a biopsy of the heart. So I'm like, okay. So I go in for um, this treatment. And actually at that time was a really, really difficult period in my life because um, my nephew was gravely ill and down in New Orleans. And I was trying to spend some time with him. So I actually was traveling around with an external defibrillator for a couple months because my doctor was so concerned that I was gonna, my heart was gonna fail. So mm -hmm. I'm wearing this vest, which some people may be aware of. So my doctor's like, no, you need to wear, <laughs> you wear this wherever you go. So after going back to when I got the biopsy, it is um, the day before Christmas Eve and they come back and they say, you have sarcoidosis. And I'm like, what? What is this? Never heard of it. I had some education in somewhat medical, you know, terminology. I thought I knew, you know, enough. But no, I had never heard of that. And he says, well, because of that, we're going to have to um, upgrade you. And so... Um, what ha ended up happening is by January 6th, they had Im um, implanted an upgrade of a biventricular pacer defibrillator. 
So I, I basically got the top of the line type of defibrillator. I'm like, okay, if that's what I need, that's what I need. But I didn't really fully understand the damage that was done to my heart. Yeah. Um, and so I'm like, okay, if this is what I, what I need, that's, that's fine. So I got that and then continued with um, healing from that and moving forward with trying to just have resume some type of regular life. And, um, but it was, it was a really, really difficult time because I didn't know anything about this disease. There was a lot of um, going on with my family at the time. And I was scared. I was terrified. I had two young children and I was, I mean, and I think anybody with any type of heart issue or sarcoidosis, you're scared. It's, you yeah. don't know. Yeah. So for me, I started Googling. And yeah. I just started Googling what is sarcoidosis and then trying to figure out and learn as much as I can. And that, that's also my nature. I, I like to learn and figure things out. So, I'm so, doing all this so are you taking sarcoidosis medicine at this point? Are they giving you prednisone or what, what, what are they doing to fix this? At, at this point, oh yes, for the medication, they had put me on um, Sotolol and on prednisone. And the prednisone, I'm like, I had never been on prednisone before. So I'm like, okay, whatever it takes. And so I was on that. They said that should help that because it was a lot of active in, and inflammation happening. Oh, and the other thing that I forgot to say is that once they had done all the tests, they said that I had sarcoidosis in my heart, in my lungs, my spleen, my lymph nodes. And I think that was it at the time. And I was shocked because I'm thinking that was, that I didn't understand the disease. But as you um, know, and a lot of SARC people may know, and from your previous episodes, you've covered what SARC is about the granulomas going into the different organs and inhibiting the blood function of those organs. So I began to understand sarcoidosis. Um, I was really sick for a long time. And I kept, even after the defibrillator, I kept going downhill. And it was really quite terrifying. Um, my doctor was very concerned. He said, one of the best things he said, he's like, well, you know what? I don't know a lot about this, so I want you to see a specialist in New York City. So then he sent me to a SARC specialist in New York City at Columbia Presbyterium. And so I felt like I was having a team in New Jersey and a team in New York who were addressing all my issues. And I had a cardiologist and a pulmonologist and um, you know an eye doctor who was familiar with sarcoidosis. So you, you have to put together a team to deal with all the issues. So yeah, I had- yeah, well, that's, that's the deal is, is one doctor's not enough. You, oh, you, no. you need a specialist for wherever you have it. I have three doctors, right? So yep. I've got it on my spine. So, you know, I need a neurologist and then I need a rheumatologist, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and uh, a pulmonologist. So it's crazy. You need all these different doctors. Oh, yeah, it, it does. Because it's like, and if I was, I was grateful that my doctor was humble enough to say that he doesn't know enough about 
promote sarcoidosis to refer me to someone who does. And I know from meeting other people with SARC that they don't always have that. They are told, you know, many different things. And a lot of times they, the egos of doctors, I feel, unfortunately, get in the way and they're not providing the best opportunity by referring you to someone who has some familiarity with wow, this disease. Wow, that is so my story. Yeah. So I had two doctors who worked on the same floor in different disciplines, would not talk to each other. Yeah. They, they wouldn't talk to each other. And one was telling me that I needed one drug and one was telling me I needed another drug. And I didn't, who am I to say? <laughs> and I couldn't get them to confer. Yeah. That's, right? it's, it's awful. It's so frustrating because yeah. I shouldn't have to be the expert. <laughs> you know? there's, no, there's no way you can be. You didn't no. go to medical school. No. You didn't go to medical school. Exactly. And you, you know, you brought up to respect doctors and believe what they say and they tell you these things and you're like, okay, I'm going to listen to you. You're knowledgeable and educated. So you're going to give me this advice. And it's not natural to question your doctors. Mm -mm. It's, it's, that's not a normal state to be. So it's even harder. So you're sick and yet you're, you're, you're questioning your doctors. You're questioning yourself thinking, should I listen to the doctor? Should I listen to myself? It's a, it's a tricky place to be. For sure. And you know, a, a lot of, a lot of the people that have talked on the Sark Fighter podcast have said the same thing. And I could do a whole, I think I, we could, we could all convene and do a podcast just on this topic. Just oh, how yeah. hard it is to know which doctor to believe to get the doctors to speak with one another mm -hmm. and, to, and to come to a consensus as a care team. Oh, it, it, It's sure. almost like every SARC patient needs an advocate within the hospital. Like when mm -hmm. I was in the hospital, they had somebody something called a hospitalist who was looking at what all the different doctors were saying and mm -hmm. making decisions. Um, but then when you're out there on your own, it, you, you know, you go to, you go visit one doctor and then it takes three or four weeks before you can go visit another doctor and they tell you something different. In the meantime, you're feeling like crap, mm -hmm. right? Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, I'm going off. Um, no, no. Well, it's, I, I completely agree. And I'm not even like covering the times that I went into doctor's office, other doctors and, and told them I wasn't feeling okay. And they're looking at me and they're like, you're fine. You're, there's nothing wrong with you. And I have left doctor's offices and tried to hold it together and then get to the parking lot and then I break down and cry. And I'm so upset and I'm so frustrated because I'm like, I know there's something wrong. And, you know, I've wanted to go back to some of those doctors going, you know what, <laughs> you were wrong. There is something significantly wrong with me and you missed it. And had I not pursued it, had I not pushed, I would have not had that answer. We're talking with Mary Marlino, and she is a, a SARC fighter, and she has been through the ringer. Uh, she's moved from Europe back to the United States. She's working through all these issues with doctors, and, and Mary, uh, it's just uh, an amazing story that you're telling us here. Uh, so you, you get your doctor situated, and, and, and what happens now? Now you're, you're starting to look at the reality of living life with sarcoidosis and maybe beginning to realize that you're not the fitness instructor that you used to be. Am I right? Yep, pretty much. 
it, it becomes a huge thing because, you know, if, if, you know, and I know you experience this too, when you define yourself about significantly about what your physical ability is, it becomes not only a physical thing, but a mental thing about how you cope and how you adjust. And to go from that type of mentality to all of a sudden being a patient is really, really bizarre. Um, one of the things that was the, the reality check for me is when my doctors decided that um, it was time for me to visit all the doctors who were transplant specialists within a four hour distance from where I lived. So I started having meetings with doctors in Connecticut, New Jersey, New York, everything was being scheduled because they thought that a um, heart transplant was ine inevitable and going to happen really soon. So that was surreal and really a difficult, a difficult situation to have to deal with. Um, but I, I, I made a promise to myself in a way that I'm like, when I got the diagnosis that what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna be the best patient in the land. I'm gonna make sure that I do everything right and get educated and do whatever I can to help myself because it was just, I felt it was important and I felt like I had to do something and do whatever I could. Right, so did you change your diet? I mean, I know you started researching. Did, mm -hmm. did you change your diet? What, what all did you do? Um, I didn't really change my diet because I've always really liked good food. I mean, I've just was one of those kids that, you know, come home from school and I'd make soup while my sister would eat a row of Oreos. Not, you know, not that I didn't eat junk food, but uh -huh. I've always eaten, you know, always cooked my own food and, and I didn't re eat a lot of junk food. Um, so for me, I guess it was just to become as educated as I can about the medications and what limitations those would be. And I had to modify, um, my exercise i had to change that mentality of pushing so hard and the doctors wanted me to they wanted me to exercise but i had to keep my heart rate low so to learn to change the focus to be longer duration um less intensity but to keep moving i'm like okay that worked for me because i just like to move um but it was hard because it was always you know, push harder, go faster, be stronger. Sure. sure. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, that, that was my home. And, you know, I have, I eat pain for breakfast, you know, famous cycling quotes, not mine, but, um, <laughs> you know, uh, that's just what you do. You just always try to get better. And you feel like, you know, for the first time in your life, you are dealing with something that you cannot fix by being diligent. Yeah. You can't work hard enough. You can't eat better. As you just said, you're already eating well. You can't get up earlier. You can't go to bed earlier. You can't therapy your way out of this. You're stuck. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Right. And I knew that um, for me, stress was a huge, huge part of that. I could, you know, that's, that had to be dealt with because I was dealing with a lot mm -hmm. with um, my family and my nephew and my my marriage to be honest and it was really really stressful and to try to make sure that I didn't get upset and to make sure that I didn't get stressed that was the hardest part for me was 
to be more passive and to try to not get upset. Yeah. Well, good, good luck with that. So let's, so where are you today? You, you've not had a heart transplant, correct? I have not had a heart transplant. Okay. And did we talk about the cardiac arrest on this? Well, you said that you, there was at one point you were in your kitchen and you had, uh, but that right. was, I think that was when we were, uh, when we were debriefing before we started. So you did have a heart attack in your kitchen, right? Well, that's the thing. Well, I actually want to be clear because a heart attack and a cardiac arrest are very different. Oh, they are. Okay. Yeah. This is one of those things I like to educate people about without, you know, I didn't know it either. A heart attack is related to um, the a lot of different parts of your heart, but a cardiac arrest is an electrical failure of the heart. Um, but it still stops, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. So yeah. I was in my kitchen with my daughter about to take her to a friend's house. And I got dizzy, and next thing I know, I I collapsed in my kitchen. I didn't know, and I came to with my daughter screaming, "Mom, mom!" And I had no idea what happened. And apparently, I had collapsed, had a cardiac cardiac arrest, and my defibrillator went off. And my poor daughter watched the whole thing. She was all alone, and. So then I, I go to the hospital, they confirm that I had a cardiac arrest and um, there's a lot more involved in that story yeah. with, you know, with the process of getting through that. But for the, you know, considering the time that we have, <laughs> we can move on. But basically the point I want to make is that I was diagnosed, correctly diagnosed with sarcoidosis then they took that seriously and that led to my upgrade from a pacemaker to a pacemaker defibrillator. And had that not happened, had I not got the proper diagnosis, when I had that cardiac arrest, I would not have survived because I didn't have a defibrillator before. So when I did have the cardiac arrest, I had the defibrillator, it went off and it saved my life. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's Amazing. the significance of a correct diagnosis. It can literally save your life. So then a couple of years ago, you sort of became this Uber patient. You were, you were like, you were going to be all everything to fight this and to help other people fight it. So you started attending summits and becoming yeah. a speaker. And so, so let's, let's get to that part of your story because I want to talk about the foundation you're now working with as well. Mm -hmm. So, so let's pick it up with you decided you needed to start attending everything. Right. Um, well, after I started, my health started to improve different medications that went through the process and, you know, that whole journey is another topic, but when it when I started getting better, that's when I was like, you know what, I need to, I want to be able to do more. I want to be able to help others. I, it's not right that myself and other people live through these things. And I think that, you know, the frustration with um, getting the correct diagnosis and the treatments. And, and when I learned that there was no known cause and no known cure for sarcoidosis, I thought that's crazy. And I did, you know, I didn't know about that. So I started to learn as much as I can. And then the first event I attended was the Rare Disease Day in New Jersey. And I thought, 
okay, let me just go down to Trenton and see what that's about. And you go down and they were speakers and then you go and meet with the state level um, lawmakers and you know, you have your chance to meet them and realize, you know what, this is actually doable. You can go and speak to your representatives. And I was, I was kind of surprised about how accessible they were. So, you know, and that was a one day thing. And then I went home and I did all this research about finding what other events, where can I learn more? And so with doing that, I looked into all the different organizations and it, you know, it, I started to attend different events and the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research was having an event in Boston and I'm originally from Boston. So I'm like, well, that's an easy one. I can go to that one. So I went there and I attended that and met other people with sarcoidosis. And it was just amazing to, to be around people who have a similar disease and understand it, but also to understand, you know, where sarcoidosis is in its research and, and what, you know, how does it exist in the world in that sense. So I, I went to that and then I went to, um, trying to think what other ones I went to. I went to the, um, I attended Rare on the Road um, and that was also in Boston. And the Rare on the Road is an Every Life Foundation for Rare Diseases event. That was the first Every Life Foundation event I attended. And that was even better. I was just like, wow. So I could take this out of just sarcoidosis, which I wanted to fight for, but I, I could see where it lays when it's around that, all the other rare diseases. And I began to understand that there were over 7,000 rare diseases and so many don't have cures or treatments and, and half of the people with rare, rare diseases are children and people have been living with these diseases and ultra rare diseases and with no answer. And I felt like that, I, I don't it was just the beginning of kind of my calling, I guess, and in some sense of like, wait a second, I need, I need to be more of a voice for this. And I want to, I want to speak up and I want to do whatever I can. So I learned as much as I could. I attended everything and I wasn't well enough at first to attend Rare Disease Week, um, which is the la usually the end of February. And it, it ends with it being rare disease day. But I knew that at first, I, that was a goal of mine, to be well enough to attend it. Because I had met some people, other sarcoidosis people, who knew me and they were like, you, you can't go yet. I don't think you're physically able to go yet. And I'm like, you know what, you're right. So that was a goal. It was a goal of mine to be able to attend that. So I kept trying to get as strong and healthy as I could so I could attend it. And eventually it was ended up that it wasn't until 2019 that I could attend. And I applied for a stipend. So I ended up being able to get um, financial assistance so I could go, which was fabulous because that helped out a great deal. And that's mm -hmm. one of the things I love about um, these organizations that will do the provide this, try to support the advocates. So I went down and um, I went down to Washington, D.C. I'm attending every event that is wrapped around Rare Disease Week. And this is hosted by the Every Life Foundation. 
And I am surrounded by so many people. And I have to say, it was amazing because you were surrounded by hundreds of people who get it. Who aren't going to question whether you're sick or you're faking it or it's not that serious. You get so inspired by all the other people that the way I sum it up a lot of times is it's a heartbreaking event learning about all these people and the journey they're on, but it's also incredibly inspiring. So from that point, I was like, you know what? This is, I confirmed it. I decided that that's what I wanted to do. So, so, so let me, um, I want we've got about 10 minutes left and I want to fast forward to you now work for the Every Life Foundation, correct? Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm looking at the, uh, as we speak, I'm looking at the, the website that talks about some of the goals and I can see a lot of you, maybe you're in this picture, a lot of people sitting on the Capitol steps. Yep. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's quite a thing. Um, so what is the goal? And I see several listed here, but what would you say is the overarching goal of the several of the Every Life Foundation? Well, the focus of the Every Life Foundation is to um, create and support legislation based on science to advance cures and treatments for the rare disease community. The focus is truly on the science behind it to make sure that we are changing policy, that we are changing things, you know, the system in a way to provide better for the rare disease community. That's one right, of the right. main focuses. The so other it's not, one- It's not just sarcoidosis, it's all of these orphan diseases. Exactly. It's a, it's a community. It's, it's, you know, it's a great community to belong to, but you don't really want to belong to it, but <laughs> you know, you kind yeah. of, and then the, another aspect of is it, that they really focus on is educating and engaging and inspiring advocates to advocate for themselves, for their own disease, for all of rare diseases, to get that patient voice. The organization does not speak for patients, but it provides opportunity for patients to voice what their concerns are and what they care about. And you know, you, you they support it in a way that, so you have the power and the experience and the tools you need to move ahead and speak to your legislators, whether it's at a state level or a federal level or whatever it happens to be, that you have a voice. And the biggest thing is that every voice matters, whether you're ultra rare or whether you're on one of the, you have one of those diseases that people don't even realize that is, is rare, like MS. You know, there's, it's supporting and encouraging the patients to share their voice and be part of the process. And for me, Every life was exactly where I wanted to be because I, my own little quote that I came up is that I, I want to fight the good fight. I was a tough kid and I have that in me and I really wanted to fight the good fight and I'm going to use my powers for good. And using, you know, my voice and using my work and committing myself to being part of the process at whatever level that it happens to be, I wanted to be part of the process that's gonna be able to make some change. And I, and I learned and I knew that, you know what, I actually can contribute. And so I keep learning and I keep working and it's, 
it's easy in the sense for motivation to be able to to do this work yeah and the things i love about um i mean i love my job and i i am the patient engagement consultant for the every life foundation and what that involves is it involves me being in, in connected to patients and patient organizations to help them build themselves up and be able to be advocates for themselves and the rare disease community. So I'll, I'll put your contact information and of course uh, a link to the Every Life Foundation in the show notes so listeners can just can just click on this. But so somebody's listening right now and they're motivated and they want to help. You're the, you're actually the person that they call. They can email me. They can call me. Absolutely. Okay. And so, and, and what do you help them do? Um, well, I help help them find their way in that sense. Like some of it is, you know, connecting them to other patients and other organizations that might relate to what their needs are. But another thing that I do is I help explain the different programs we have and how they can get involved. And whether it's Rare Disease Week or Rare on the Road, which is happens all over the United States. Rare Across America is happening right now, and that's where um, or advocates are meeting with their lo- their legislators while they're on this summer break. And, right. and, and what are you asking legislators to do? Well, you know, each time we have different asks. And so there's certain asks that we ask that, that change. Some of them, the most, significant one is we ask legislators to join the rare disease caucus because we want them to be aware of what's happening in the rare disease community and support us and we are also working to try to create a center of excellence that's another one of our asks that we're trying to create an area where um, similar to there's a cancer center of excellence at the nih we're trying to do that for rare diseases so there's there's all kinds of different asks that become um, important over certain periods of time, and some of them are long-lasting, and some of them are sure. evergreen. Well, I know that when the if the NIH, for instance, gets involved with sarcoidosis, uh, the amount of money that would be available to the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research would go from a couple of million dollars a year, or, you know, thereabouts, to you know, tens of millions of dollars right away. But the NIH has to be involved. So I would think that your advocacy, uh, although you're talking about all of these 7,000 orphan diseases, uh, but, but having people aware of that has got to help open up some of the floodgates for, for or at least not even, maybe, maybe tributaries for funding. Floodgates mm-hmm. would, be, would be a best case scenario. <laughs> but oh, we, want, we yeah. want more than a trickle. You know, we want more oh. than a trickle. Absolutely. And one of the things I feel fortunate about, because I was advocating at the beginning for just sarcoidosis, and then it, you know, incorporated all of them. But what I really like is the fact that I can, I can have whatever's happening, I can connect it to the sarcoidosis world and just be a representative and an advocate for sarcoidosis in it. If the subject comes up, if I can, if I can plug sarcoidosis, I'm going to do it. And I love being a voice for that disease in that community because there's 7,000 plus diseases. So I think getting awareness for sarcoidosis is crucial because 
people, even in the rare disease community, don't know about it. No, so, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. So, and of course, we've got COVID right now. Mm -hmm. um, and that is a, a huge problem. So these, these meetings, these in-person meetings don't take place. Uh, the, the picture of you all sitting on the front steps of the United States Capitol or the Senate building, um, you know, without masks, not without social distancing, that happened before all this happened. So how is it happening now in the virtual sense? You know what, I'm glad you asked that because we had, that's the big question. It's like, well, now what do we do? How do we do what we do in this new world? Because we have important work and we have important things that need to be said. So we have transitioned in a way that we are doing those meetings virtually. We're doing Zoom meetings, phone calls, and that's, that's how we're working with Rare Across America. And you know what we're going to do in the future, we're kind of taking it event by event. I mean, the rest of our events this year, we have a scientific workshop, we have newborn screening, um, we have, you know, a lot of the Rare Voice Awards, awards. we have a lot of different activities going on, but everything is virtual to the end of the year. And we're, we're scrambling and working and successfully being able to be, create these and have them be virtual. So we will adapt to whatever the situation is, whether it's virtual, whether it's a hybrid, or when eventually when we can get back in person, we can just keep on going. We don't want to stop. There's so much work to be done that it's important for all of us to, to keep working and keep moving forward. Yeah. Well, um, the only thing I want to ask you still is it looks like you are up and around and have a lot of energy and you're feeling really good today uh and so you've been able to do this work um how how are you feeling and what's next for you well what's next for me i've been feeling pretty good and in a weird way having covid where i'm working at home has helped because it doesn't take that much you know i don't have to commute so i'm able to be able to do more work because i wasn't sure whether i was physically capable of it um, but my health has been okay. I have I have waves and I have setbacks. I have flares and and I live with chronic migraines, and I'm still limited in what I can do. But um, next for me is still being the best patient I can be. I'm due for another pacemaker defibrillator replacement next year. Um, so. You know, and I call, this is one thing I want to add is like my pacemaker, I call her Vivian. <laughs> Vivian, the name means full of life. So I'm due for Vivian the third. So I'm just um, trying to take care of myself and, you know, live as healthfully as possible and still continue to work. I, I want to support, I want sarcoidosis is to have a cure and, and effective treatments. I want rare disease. I want that whole, I want the line to move. And any way I can contribute to that, I'm happy to. I think it's important. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Um, Brenda? I'm here. Um, so Brenda, would you add anything to this? Uh, Brenda Colomeris has been uh, listening in uh, on this. Uh, she is also from the foundation, the Every Life Foundation. So Brenda, would you add anything? No, I think it's great. Like Mary is awesome. And I think she's perfect with 
like for what she does. I'm so happy I met her. And we share one thing in common is that we both have rare diseases and we joined the Every Life Foundation almost at the same time. So it's been great to have her like as a support in the team. Yeah, and Brenda, what is your role with the group? I am the communications manager. Oh, okay, yes, yes. you're the PR person. Yes, correct. Okay. All right. And well, your um, disease, she has myasthenia. Myasthenia gravis, yeah. Okay, I was gonna, I was gonna ask you that next. Yes. Um, and uh, that's, that's another one that comes up fairly often. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, listen, I just want to congratulate uh, both of you, uh, and uh, I'm really happy that you guys are doing what you're doing uh, from, from my perspective as a SARC patient. And, you know, I call this the SARC Fighter Podcast because I also want to fight the good fight. And, uh, and, and I know there's a lot of other diseases that, that need the attention of our legislators. And if we can get the NIH to to focus a little bit more and create happy places for pharmaceutical companies to uh, to work on these different treatments. Uh, I think that that's going to be good for uh, a lot of people. What is it? Isn't it like one out of ten people have some sort of a rare disease? Yes. So when you when you lump them all together, it's not as it's not as uh, not as rare as is the two hundred thousand of us say who have sarcoidosis. So. Um, so Brenda, uh, I appreciate it. And Mary, uh, you, you're a great storyteller and I wanna thank you for sharing your story here today. And I would say to, um, to both of you, um, help me spread the word about this podcast because the whole reason I'm doing this is the same reason that, that you all are doing what you're doing. And because I'm a, a broadcaster, uh, this just actually teach podcasting at, at the college level also. It just seemed like what I could do to, um, to, to spread the word. So the, the more you help me get the word out, the more effective all of us can be. And uh, uh, I just, I really am, am grateful. So, um, so thank you all for joining us today on the Start Fighter podcast. Great, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to speak and, and to be part of this because you know, we're all fighters. And if anybody wants to um, explore, go to the Every Life Foundation website in addition, we have rarereport.org, which is a newsletter that keeps everybody updated. And check our social media with um, everylight.org. And uh, Brenda, anything else we should add? No, <laughs> we'll, we'll be happy to share this when it comes out on all our social media channels. So just let us know. Yeah. All right. Very good. And thank well, you so um, much for doing what you do. You. Yes. And all right. I really appreciate your efforts. Thank you. Yep. Y'all take care. Thank you. Nice to meet you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks again to Mary Morlino for that great interview, the takeaways from that, the difficulty in needing the multiple doctors, which I touched on before, the real, the real danger from Sark. Uh, you saw how it laid her out and how she, and, and then uh, in episode 15, I interviewed uh, Reginald from Chicago. Uh, he actually had to get a new heart, a heart transplant. He didn't know if he was going to make it. Uh, and Mary may be looking at a heart transplant at some point in her life. So obviously if Sark shows up in the wrong place, it's uh, it can be really, really bad. Uh, and, you know, the other thing is it just doesn't matter how healthy and fit you are. It can get any of us. Here she is, you know, skiing, playing tennis, aerobics instructor, living in Switzerland, having a big life. 
And the next thing you know, her heart's not working. Can't go a minute on the treadmill. Um, man, that's, that is scary stuff. Now, I will say that my doctors have told me the best way to stay ahead of SARC is to absolutely stay fit, to keep cycling, to keep pushing myself, lift weights, and, and eat well. Um, they think that that is critical to my staying ahead of sarcoidosis. And I, I would, of course, you want to ask your doctor the caveat we always throw out there, but, but I would think that would be true for most people. Um, that whole thing about the misdiagnosis or no diagnosis, how long Mary had to deal with that. And then, you know, let's remember the information at the end about the Every Life Foundation. Mary is fighting back. She's taking the rare disease effort right to Washington. And I really would encourage you to go look at their website. Again, the link is in the show notes. They are doing a lot of stuff. They've got an awards uh, thing going on right now uh, for people who are helping them take that fight to, to Washington. And if that's something that you feel like maybe you want to do, you don't have to go to Washington to do it. Most likely, uh, there's a, a congressman or a senator with an office not far from where you live. You can go lobby them right there. It's not big and scary. I can tell you that. I talk to them all the time uh, in my role as a, as a news reporter. Uh, and usually you're talking to staff anyway, but um, get it out there. Go talk to them. And, and anyway, you, you, you're going to want to listen or uh, look for that link and, and go uh, check out their website. Um, and then again, just thanks to Mary for uh, sharing her story. I hope that if you are listening, you are finding this podcast helpful. Please do drop me a note if, if you are or if you have some thoughts or comments. Uh, I just And I so appreciate people like Mary, like Reg, many of the others who are willing to come on, talk about their lives and put it out there uh, in these days when HIPAA suggests that that's not what we're supposed to do. It's, it's, it's really brave for people to do that and it's much appreciated. And as a listener, I hope you appreciate it too. And uh, other than that, I would say thanks to Mary for joining me on episode 16 of the Sark Fighter podcast. And until next time, keep fighting. And I don't know what will come. Look for silver linings, but